Gather round, children. This is the Dice Tower Network. The Broken Meeple, Season 2, Episode 30, HandyCon. The holiday is over, the breakup is over and done with, so now it's time to get back to some recording and podcasting. Thankfully, it's not all doom and gloom. There was HandyCon, which I attended a couple of weeks ago, and now I'm here to give you my thoughts on the new venue, how it's evolved over time, and the games that I played. Hello, welcome to the show, thank you for listening, I'm Luke Hector and this is the Broken Meeple Podcast. Yeah, you heard right from the intro, holidays and a breakup. I've already kind of mentioned this on the YouTube channel, so sorry if this is uh, kind of like, you know, telling you all over again, but essentially I've had a couple of big things happen lately, um, as well as HandyCom. Firstly, I took a break from recording and podcasting to go see my brother in the Lake District. Um, That's not where he lives, but his girlfriend basically arranged this massive event where friends and family came and stayed in the resort area in the Lake District, and we put on some events and, you know, did some stuff down the lake, water sports, went sightseeing, and just generally spent some time with my brother for his 40th birthday. It was a blast. I loved it. Took my girlfriend up there as well. You know, we had a good time and, and all that. And just generally, yeah, really enjoyed that week. I really love the Lake District. It's one of my favorite places in the UK to go. And I might even convince myself to go back there in September because, sadly, I wasn't able to do as much uh, long walking as I would like to do. And I'm a big thing about, you know, walking up as many hills and mountains as I can. I see it as a kind of personal challenge. I did it in Austria and loved it. So I might go back to the Lake District in September because I've got some holiday to use up and conquer some of those peaks that I wasn't able to on this event. However, yes, you also heard right on the second point. Uh, the relationship breakup is done with, yes. Um, I mentioned I had a girlfriend, and sadly, you know, I was kind of like, you know, I was umming and ahhing, I wasn't certain if it was going to last. We went on holiday, we had a good time, you know, don't, don't get me wrong, we didn't break up in a bad way. But when we got back, we, I spoke up the conversation, I had to sort of talk it over, and we both mutually agreed, which was a bit of a relief because I was afraid it was just going to be me doing it. But it was a mutual thing. We both agreed that we were just kind of incompatible. You know, we if we did discuss this a couple of months ago, we would have probably broken up then. We just we enjoyed the good stuff about each other, but we had to accept that we were just different people, different interests, and it wasn't going to last forever. So we called it off from there. And sadly, that's just the way it is. But don't worry, guys. I'm fine. I've gotten over the emotional part of it because, well, for two reasons. One, I'm in mid thirties. You know, life is short. You got to move on. Uh, secondly, we had only been dating for about, what, seven, eight months, so it's not like it's the longest relationship I've ever had. And thirdly, uh, Handicom was literally straight after. Yeah, so it was quite a good timing. Come back from the Lake District, break up, and then go to Handicom for three days. So if you need anything that can cheer me up loads after an emotional breakup, then Handicom's a pretty good bet. And like I say, back on the single life, but hey, you know, gotta go searching for that to... That one geek out there, that gamer geek, the one who likes Lord of the Rings, board games, Marvel and DC superheroes, basically the stuff that I like, because I feel that's going to be the only way I'm happy at this rate. But like, like I say, enough moaning and whining about that. Let's actually get on to the main focus of this episode, which, as I say, has been a while since the last one, but, you know, I'm allowed to take a holiday sometime, you know.
it was Handycon. Yes, Handycon 4. There's already a fifth one planned for January. It's had three conventions before, and, you know, I'm sure you can count. But Handycon is a, well, was a small convention run by Paul Harris. You'll know him off uh, Board Game Trading UK group quite often. And he gets a bunch of volunteers, his friends and, you know, people who just happen to want to volunteer. And he and his team run this convention around the Maidenhead area in sort of near London, kind of off the M25 in a sense. And it was previously at this holiday, uh, yeah, this holiday in location, um, I forget where it was, High Wycombe I think it was originally, for free sessions, and it did well. It has evolved over time, certainly during those free sessions, you know, it's gotten bigger and bigger, you know, more things have been tried, like playtesting and tournaments and things like that, but, you know, like I say, it's been a really good convention, but it was fairly small scale, it was a case of, look, everybody, just come to this venue, sit on tables, play some board games, have fun, and it did just the job, exactly like that. You know, there were you know things that were improved as time went on in terms of that. And to be fair, most of that was down to the venue itself more than anything else. You know, the venue was half and half. They weren't as hospitable as you would love. But this time, Handycon moved to another Holiday Inn location, literally about 10 minutes down the road, in, a, in pretty much Maidenhead itself. And this one was, whoa, it was a big improvement. Not flawless, but certainly a massive improvement for a venue. For starters, it was more spacious. You had this giant hallway that could be split into two rooms, and it was originally, but then you could open up the divider wall, and then you had this huge space for gaming that you could just see everyone around, and yet it didn't feel so loud that you couldn't hear yourself speak. You know, I taught many games in there and had a blast. So, you know, and that was just downstairs. There was also rooms upstairs where if you wanted an even quieter environment, you could go up there and again, you could still hear yourself think, you could hear yourself talk, so it never got overwhelming. So there was more than enough gaming space. I mean, I never found myself having to struggle to find a table at any point. And, you know, it just felt like a much more bigger convention, as, and it has been getting bigger. I mean, the attendees' has numbers has gone up as each time passes, you know, depending on space. That's why half the reason why they moved in the first place, you know, they needed more numbers. Um, but the rest of the stuff about the venue, though, the staff were more hospitable, for the most part, and the, you know, rooms were decent, you know, you didn't have to walk too far to get to your bags and that, and they had a bar with some cider that wasn't just strong bow for a change, it's nice that I can actually get something half decent, and you had free tea and coffee, fantastic, I mean, you need that as a staple at every convention, free tea and coffee when you're doing this sort of thing, and thankfully it meant that you could get tea, coffee and water when you needed it, two bars, Bar staff could have been a little bit improved, <laughs> I will admit. There were quite a few cases where it was blatant that they brought the trainees on recently, and there was a lot of confused faces, a lot of uh, conflicting uh, you know, pieces of information going out, particularly over the little ticket things that you got for drinks, and certain, some of their stuff was breaking down, some of them were just quite slow. So, you know, that will improve. I mean, come January, <laughs> they'll have had more training, so they'll be better at the job. But, like I say, that minor nitpick aside... Generally, venue pretty sweet. Oh, and yeah, and there was a gym and a swimming pool there as well, so I can't complain. I can get up on Saturday morning, and before breakfast, I I went to the gym, had a bit of a swim, and just generally relaxed and proved that gamers can have exercise before having breakfast and then getting stuck into a demo at that point. So it's, it's nice to have that flexibility there. There's not much to do in the area, Although there is a garage next door with a Greg's and a Subway, so there is a good way to get some food if you're not happy with the overpriced Holiday Inn prices. And that's not a fault on the convention at all, that's just Holiday Inn. They're expensive, you know, deal with it. 
But yeah, so generally pretty sweet. You know, the venue was a massive improvement. As for the con itself, can't really fault it. Just like before, the volunteers, Paul and all this team, you know, they do a great job at hosting the scene and making everyone feel at home, you know, giving out messages and just basically being very cheerful and happy, you know, giving that same vibe that you want at the convention. And bless Paul, you know, he had a bit of a bug the previous week, so, you know, he looked knackered. But, you know, that's what happens when you run a convention. You know, I do teaching at uh, game events and stuff like that, and that's uh, knackering enough. I mean, I did a 12-hour stint on last Saturday for Guildhall Retro Games Fest. I was at Portsmouth Guildhall doing that, teaching for 12 hours. I was riding the high for the thing, but I was tired afterwards, and I was just teaching games, you know, let alone running the whole thing. So, you know, give the man credit. But ah, he and his team did a great job. They sorted out the library, they sorted out tables, they sorted out any issues. They were on the front desk at all times, you know. But what, how, what more can you do, really? They kind of did what was expected and didn't fault. So, you know, not going to have a problem with that. Although I will say, just one thing, actually. This is a little rant here. Those people, there was a lot of people who, you know, when they give the suggestions for improvement, that's fine. You know, you can make these suggestions and there are things that can be improved. You know, nothing's flawless. But there was a lot of comments going back about the library. Now, this library is decent enough. I mean, it's not like got millions of games on it, it but it's basically Paul's collection, I think. Well, Paul's collection and maybe a few other people who have brought some games. So... You've got to accept that the library's not going to have every game in existence that you could ever play. It's their collections, it's their games, and to be fair, they're bringing their games for you to tamper with. You know, I always feel kind of scared when I take my games to these teaching events I do, because I have to remember that somebody other than me is handling this game, and they're not necessarily going to treat it with as much respect as I do. And looking at some of my games, I wouldn't necessarily say that I treat them with as best respect as I could either. But I certainly know how to bag it up, I know how to put it away, I know how to handle it during the game, and then you're afraid that when you get it the next time, it's like all over the place and the person just didn't bother packing it into the box neatly, or broke something. So they do, you know, they're putting their games on the line to bring them here, and just a lot of people sort of moaning about, oh, we want this game in there, or your game's not complete, it doesn't have Puerto Rico in there, and it's like, guys, come on. It's their collection, and they bring the library so that you have extra games you can play. You can bring your own games, you know. <laughs> you know, we bring our own games. I brought, I didn't bring many, I think I brought one bag of games. One for the bring and buy, and one bag of my games. I think I brought, what, four games that I wanted to play, that I desperately wanted to play. All of them got played, in fact one of them got played, actually no, one of them I didn't play, because Paul Grogan nicked it because he forgot his copy of Pulsar 2849 and so I lent him my copy so that he could demo it at his table and never actually played it in the end. So fair enough. But at least it got put to good use and it got him out of stuck. But yeah, come on. The library is going to be what it is. It's a collection of games. It's not going to have everything. Bring the ones that fill the gap. I think they put the details of what's in the library on the internet or on Facebook before the convention so you can check what's in there. So just go on there and check. But... Yeah, what, what are you expecting? A sprawling library, like something from Thirsty Meeples, or, uh, and even to be fair, Thirsty Meeples' library is not exactly extensive, you know, did you see the one at the UK Games Expo? It was pretty horrific. Uh, yeah, so you're not going to get that sort of thing at this convention, so just bring your games that will plug the gap. And to be honest, I don't mind Puerto Rico, but let's face it, you know, there are better games in that library than Puerto Rico by far. You know, I was able to get Scythe out of there. I was able to get the Gallerist. And, well, actually, I'm spoiling the games too much, so we'll get onto those in a minute. But, yeah, just 
lay off on the library thing, okay? They'll break, they'll find a way to get more games in there, but at the end of the day, it's their collections. It's not like, you know, publishers like to donate games to libraries in cafes. They like to do that sort of thing. They're not as keen to donate to libraries when it's at little mini conventions, particularly if it's just going to go into somebody's collection afterwards. They see it as a kind of a personal game. So they, it's not like this convention is going to get littered with publishers constantly saying, here, have these games, here, have these games. It'd be amazing if they did, but it doesn't happen with Aircon. It's not going to happen with this one either. So, yeah, you just got to take that. So, yeah, generally, venue-wise and convention-wise, highly enjoyable. It was just what I needed from, you know, post-emotional breakup. I was able to play a lot of games there, hang out with a lot of friends from Southampton, you know, more often, you know, meet some new people as well, find some people who listen to the podcast and watch the videos, and it was just generally a really enjoyable time. So, okay, we got that out of the way. Handycon 4, great success. So what were the games I was playing? Quite a lot. In fact, I don't think I would count any dud games. One game almost became a dud. It certainly became one that I don't think I was going to regret backing on Kickstarter, or certainly don't think I'll be giving it too much of a look, but it was still alright. So, you know, no bad games, no duds, mostly great games. Whether it was stuff in my bag, or just stuff we took from the library, you know, there was some good stuff in there, or what other people have brought. And I even got to try out some new stuff as well. So I'm just going to mention, I'm going to go over a lot of the games I played, but I'm going to go into more detail into the ones that I hadn't played before. Think of it as giving a kind of mini first impressions review of them. So, you know, first up was, I'm looking through my photo gallery here, and this is not a comprehensive list because I forgot to take a photo at times. Uh, Altiplano was the first one I kicked off with. I like Altiplano. It's a decent game. It's certainly better than Orleans. Orleans' theme, or lack, lack of it, just bores me to death. It's not that Altiplano has a better theme, because to be honest, it's fairly dry as well. But I just feel like you get more options in Altiplano. I like the moving around the map. You know, that's part of the fact, part of what you do. There's a lot of different things you can do. You can buy those tiles that upgrade all your actions. You can have a unique board compared to anyone else's. You have a slightly unique starting setup anyway. And quite a fair few paths to victory. So I enjoyed that one. Granted, it's multiplayer solitaire through and through, though. You have no reason to play this above two players. So the fact we were playing it with four filled me with a little bit of dread. Thankfully, all of us kind of knew what we were doing, and we actually got through it fairly speedily, but it was getting to that point. But yeah, you, I mean, people seem to say, oh no, it is not multiplayer solitaire, because when you take, you know, you have to be aware that resources drain off the tiles, therefore there's player interaction. That's not player interaction. <laughs> you know, that's, that's no different really from just the fact that a worker took, you know, that his guy's worker took your space. It's about the same kind of level as that. And to be honest... Never did we, ha never have I seen a time when the resources have been drained to an extent that has hurt another player. You know, if anything, if someone's gunning for the same resource as you, then do something else. That's usually what I do. The best way to succeed in a lot of Euro games is not to do the same thing that everyone else is doing because they'll have too much competition. So I got two people here like constantly gunning for fish. All right, well I ain't doing fishermen then. Um, I'll go over here and get to coca beans. Ah, great. No one else is getting coca beans. Right, I can do what I like then. Same for getting glass. And I think I won it in the end, but yeah, so I like Odoplado, but it's not my favourite game ever, but it was a good way to kick things off. 
Then we move on to a game I really love. You know, spoiler alert, you haven't even seen it in the top 100 yet. Uh, the Empires of the Void. Yes, Empires of the Void 2. Ryan Luckett's updated version of a sci-fi 4X classic. Well, maybe 3X, I don't know. You can argue it's only a 3X, but I don't care. This is a great sci-fi space game where you're going around planets and deciding whether you want to ally with a race or conquer them. You get different bonuses depending. You can either have their faction abilities and their recruits, or you can just get the resources and the flat, you know, some easy points. And you can go to other planets and find little snippets. And I really love the power cards. Each one gives you like little missions you can do, little pick up and delivery aspects, and eventually you draw an event card that there's one for every single planet in the game. You will not use every single planet in the game, and there are five or six events for each planet. The variety in this game for those events is off the charts. I mean, I wish they used more events, but these events range from like stock market crashes to you know, random sea creatures appearing to invaders from outer space to a planet with a self-destruct nuke. You know, it can actually take out the whole planet. These events are really varied and really cool. And it's just great that they turn up randomly and change what you might do in the game from a tactical perspective. If you saw the photo I put up, I mean, Empires of the Void is, it's like photosynthesis. It's an Instagrammer's wet dream. It looks so pretty and gorgeous. It wasn't even me to, well, I kind of taught it in the end. I mean, uh, you know, my friend brought it, but he was a little bit uncertain on the rules. So I sort of half taught it myself, but I love teaching. I have no problem with that. And this game is just a blast, you know. Love it, love it, love it. I think I won this one as well, but to be fair, I've played it about five or six times more than they have, so that kind of gave me a bit of an advantage. Then moving through, uh, the next big one, uh, Scythe. Yeah, we did manage to get Scythe out of the library. We used Paul's copy. Well, there's not much I can really say about Scythe. I love it. It was in my top 10 of the top 100 last year. I can guarantee you it's certainly not fallen much since last time. And... Yeah, I just get a kick out of this game, you know, I can understand why some people don't like it, you know, they wanted mech combat, or they feel it's just another Euro engine builder or something, but I just love how varied it is, and how streamlined it is, the expansions have done it justice, and I'm currently, actually, running through the Fenris campaign, as of now I have done two, uh, yeah, two games of the eight episode campaign, and so far so good. And next Monday, bank holiday, we intend to meet up, the three of us. Yeah, unfortunately, I couldn't get more than three of us because as much as I know a lot of people who like Scythe, getting them to commit to an eight-episode campaign was a little bit tricky. So three of us are doing it. And next bank holiday, we are going to zoom through as many games as we can. Can we finish the rest of the campaign? I doubt it, but we'll certainly be like one or two off of the four. I would, I would imagine we can get four games done at least next bank holiday Monday. But yeah, we enjoyed a good game of Scythe. I think I won that as one as well. I mean, this is not... Like trying to boast or anything, but I have played these games a bit off more often than they have, so it's it's kind of you get used to it. And Cypher's been played quite a bit by me, but I was playing who was I playing? I believe I was playing the yeah, I was playing the red faction as well, and I find them quite an easy faction to play, so that wasn't much different. But yeah, we played with Wind Gambit, we had airships running around, we had some combats, we had plenty of engine building. Yeah, it was all pretty solid. And to be fair, if you want to make me lose Scythe on a regular basis and just make me play blue or black. I can't remember the last time I won with black. I might have done it once, and I have yet to win with blue. I just don't know how to win with the Nordic faction in this game. <laughs> it's just, I know there's a way to do it, and I know some people swear that Nordic's a really powerful faction, but I just can't see it. I find them to be the weakest faction in the whole game, and that's weaker than purple. <laughs> that's saying something. But 
it's just a different playstyle, and I just haven't got used to blue. So maybe I just need to opt to be blue a bit more in future Scythe games so I can get a bit more practice with them. For now, I'm playing yellow in the uh, Fenris campaign because yellow is my favourite faction. I love their ability of spending a combat card to get resources. I like to abuse that as often as possible. This is something I like about the yellow faction. And then several times this photo probably should have popped up, uh, Azul. Yeah, somebody had brought Azul, to, you know, recently bought it, wanted me to teach it. They got hooked. We must have played it about two or three times as a good filler. You know Azul. <laughs> it won the Spiel the Yaris, and deservedly so. Granted, I feel that it's going to get repetitive over time, and it's not one that I would want to play again and again and again. But, you know, it does the job. It is simple, it's great for families, looks good on the table, abstract, don't have to worry about the theme on this one. It's just streamlined, a nice streamlined abstract game that up to four players can play. So what can I really say? It's a solid game. Then looking up, uh, what else do we have? Now, I didn't have the photo for this because I'm an idiot, but uh, we did play Dinosaur Island. Not going to say much about that because I've played it, uh, reviewed it already, go check out that video. But I love Dinosaur Island, it is a fantastic game, and so three of us had a blast making parks. I think I lost this one actually, yeah, I, I lost um, Dinosaur Island to my friend, uh, she beat me very much on that one, because I just, I couldn't really get set up with the sort of park I was doing, and she was able to m manage the turn order to such a good extent that she was constantly like one victory point behind me, and so kept going first and kept nicking all the food stalls, which I really wanted. So she had such a monetary lead that it was insane. Those, those food stalls are very good if you can get them early in the game. But yep, Dinosaur Island, great fun. Right, now we get onto a new one. The, the last one in that night, Meeple Circus. I would not played this before, but it always caught my interest, even though I'm not the biggest fan of dexterity games. I like them, I suck at them though. So, this one I thought I'd go for, because, you know, Circus Theme has an app that plays the funky music, which is <laughs> kind of cool, and it's got a lot of cool components. You've got the different colour meeples, you've got uh, meeple elephants, meeple uh, seals, meeple ponies and stuff, <laughs> it's kind of weird. And a lot of random things like barrels and sticks and all sorts. And the idea is, is that you have these cards that have pictures of what you want to perform, like, you know, you want the seal to hold a ball above his head, you want the meeples to be stood in a weird little tr uh, pyramid shape and stuff like that. And you're trying to achieve as many of these as you can simultaneously in the time limit, but you're also trying to utilize certain other aspects that will also get you points like having blue meeples on the ground, yellow in the air, and red as high as physically possible, you know. So there's a lot of little neat things like that. It's an okay dexterity game, you know, nothing too special about it. It looks the part, it's a good chuckle, it's a good laugh, it's lighthearted. The main thing I'm not a huge fan of is that in the last round you have to do it one at a time. And that's a little bit bad, because when you're doing it simultaneously, everybody's getting into it, everybody's putting each other off in a sense, because you're too busy sort of, you're looking at your own thing, but you can't help but notice what everyone else is doing. When it's just you, though, being watched by others, the slightest distraction will knock your thing down, and that can get a little bit annoying, because as soon as you get into that, you just can't recover. But... The other part of it is that you have this card that you take in the last round, which basically is one of those act stupid because we need laughter type mechanics, where you must, every time your guy drops, you must say, ow, 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 it hurts three times before you can start again. Or you can't use your thumbs or some weird thing like that. And it's, I don't like it when games force you to be silly. You should be being silly because the game just naturally makes you be silly, but not, here's a card, act stupid because we need laughs. It's not a huge fan of that. So it's an okay dexterity game. I don't mind it, but I'm not exactly going to go mad 
over it. I'll play it if it hits the table, but I'm not going to seek it out either. Uh, then let's see. Next, we have ah uh, yes. Now this was the near dud of the convention. It wasn't a, it wasn't a dud. It just I was expecting more. This was the demo of Escape Plan. Now nothing against the demo itself. The demo was fine. Paul Grogan taught uh, I think five of us and did a great job as always. But this was what looks like a prototype. It's actually the near-finished version of you know, Escape Plan by Vital Lacerda. Now, I'm normally an advocate of a lot of Vital Lacerda's games. I love The Gallerist, love Kanban, quite like Vinyos, and pretty much and quite like Lisboa as well. So all of them are in my top 100, so I can't exactly complain. I don't like CO2, though. That was rubbish. But Escape Plan, I was a little bit wary about because aesthetically, it looks pretty naff. I'm sorry, but this is not a good-looking game, in my opinion. It looks prototype-ish, and that's not what I want to see from a Vital Lacerda game. Secondly, it's lighter than his other affairs, which normally I'd be like, oh yeah, this great, we could do with a lighter version of this. It's a shame it doesn't take as much time as a lighter game should. Most of the other games from Vital Lacerda will take you a good two and a half hours, you know, maybe three, but they're heavy games. I kind of expect that. This one took us about three hours, and yes, granted, we were all learning the game, and it was brand new, so yeah, you could knock off a good 30 minutes or something once you're used to it, but still, you were talking a two and a half, three hour game with five players, and you barely did anything. Your turns were very simplistic. You have, I think, three days to get out, you know, to get your stuff and get out of the city. Three days, right? And there's a maximum of five actions per day. So a maximum of 15 actions you're gonna do. And I say maximum because you normally only get three. The only way to get a fourth and a fifth is to get coffee, it seems, which allows you to stay up a bit late and do more actions. So you're talking a minimum of nine actions and a max of 15. On average, you're going to be doing about 12. 12 actions. Wow, that's a low amount of actions for a near two and a half to three hour game. That's not good. Now, you know, people can argue that maybe Pulsar 2849 has a similar thing, because you don't do many actions in that. I think you only do about 16 actions in that. But Pulsar 2849, you can get done in less than two hours easily. I mean, you can wrap up a four-player game of Pulsar 2849 in 90 minutes if you know what you're doing. Granted, that doesn't happen that often, but you're talking between 90 minutes and two hours, including teaching. That's a pretty decent length for a game like that. And each action in that game feels fulfilling. You have a lot of options, and you don't feel as punished. Here, though, whoa, okay, your actions are usually just move a piece across this tile map, which looks horrible, and go to a building and put a cube somewhere. Yay. <laughs> and, you know, occasionally you might flip a tile that allows you to use a little asset or a little card, which basically just allows you to dodge occasional different types of police. Except that the Beeple police are exactly the same, whether they're the local cops or the FBI or riot police. It's just different things allow you to dodge different colors. It's not like one does more damage or has special abilities or anything. It's just different colors. Okay, not exactly fantastic, but anyway. And then the other thing that I had a problem with was the... It, I mean, this is only first impressions, bear in mind. I played one game of this. But we were told that a high notoriety strategy combined with getting it low in the later game had won twice already in the last like few games that have been played. The high notoriety strategy in this game still won. And they didn't even have to get it that low down either. 
So I'm noticing the trend that high notoriety seems to be a pretty powerful way to do it because I deliberately stayed low to see if you could be a low notoriety player and still win. No, you can't. I did all right. I think I came middle of the road. I think I came third, maybe fourth, I'm not sure. But yeah, you don't have a very exciting game on low, not no, low notoriety and you don't seem to get as many bonuses as you do when you're on high. But the negatives have been on the high notoriety, the negative points and the you know, cops coming after you don't seem very debilitating enough. You can shrug off the minus points with a decent you know, run to a safe house and the cops are pretty ineffectual in this game. You know, there are times when meeples are surrounding like nearly every tile and you expect the cops to just completely own you, but there's so many ways to be mobile in this game and dodge cops that the cops just seem like more than a nuisance rather than an actual threat. So this one I didn't really get as much of a kick out of. You know, like I said, the demo was fine and the teaching was fine and I can see where some people may like this, but nah, I just really wasn't feeling it. I... I found myself bored a lot because the downtime between turns was, you know, waiting ages for people to sort of understand rules and do stuff. You know, I, I grant, I reckon you should be able to get this done in, game done in about 90 to 120 minutes if you knew what you were doing with about four of you. So it's not like this is always going to be a long game, but for how little you do on your actions and how mostly ineffectual they are, you're basically just going to spots on the board and trying to get your income. That's about it. You don't get to shoot any cops, you don't get to do anything cool or fun, you just kind of move around these tiles and visit spots, dodge a few meeples and collect, put cubes on buildings to say that you've got the money out and occasionally look through a safe which gives you a tile that gives you some money. It's not particularly, it's not, for something called escape plan that gave me a kind of Grand Theft Auto vibe, it, it seemed very lackluster. So I was wondering if I should have backed this Kickstarter, I'm glad I didn't. So I might give this one a look on retail and give it a few more plays, but I'm certainly not really going to care too much when it does come out. It's not like I'm going to be waiting for it like crazy. I've got four Vital Asserta games that I love here. I'm kind of good with missing this one. Uh, next photo, Abyss. Yeah, I have a broken record. I don't really need to say much here. Abyss is a fantastic game. You want to know my thoughts on Abyss? I think I've reviewed it in the past, but if not, go check out my top 10 underrated games list and the recent review I did on Abyss Leviathan, the expansion. Abyss is such a great game. It is one of the most gorgeous looking games I have ever played. Love it to bits and the recent expansion fixes the one flaw I had with the base game. So now it is a 10 out of 10 title for me and you'll be interested to see how far that's gone up in my top 100 this year. Then, ah, uh, yes, this is always a classic, Pursuit of Happiness. Yes, I love this game. The Game of Life Euro Edition, I call it. This one is always fun every time I play it. Granted, four or five players can take a bit long, and there's quite a lot to take in. It's quite a table hog. But the group that I played it with, maybe, no, no, we'd all played it. But certainly the two main people I played it with, they they got into this game when I showed them that. And one of them in particular is addicted to this game. He loves it to bits. And like me, he gets into the theme, he role plays his character that he's doing, and just does stuff just for the fun of it. He's not caring whether it gets in the most points and the money and stuff like that. He's just doing it because it's a laugh. And that's the perfect sort of person you want to play this game with. It's just such a great sandbox game of living your life how you want to do it. It is literally game of life with Euro mechanics. Um, unfortunately, you didn't have the expansion or any of the second edition stuff because I think you only had the first edition copy. But hey, doesn't matter. Still a fantastic game. And I've always got my copy if I want to show off all that stuff. So 
what the, what was I doing in this game anyway? I think I was, I was all about getting projects and yeah, not having to pay the level one cost of them. So I was doing a lot of projects, but with the life goals, I also had to get, um, I actually got a boyfriend. I got a boyfriend called Glenn in this game. It was like, oh, dreamy Glenn. And what was he good for? Oh yeah, he was good for rewarding my, you know, my creativity, which I was getting a bucket load of at the start. So yeah, I actually raised a family with him a little bit too quickly for my liking. I mean, it's funny how in these games I do the opposite of what I want in real life. You know, it's, it's kind of weird. So raising a family like stupidly early to get the points for the goal. And that sucked up a bit of my time in later years. But then looking at what else I was doing, yes, I remember I... You had to buy the most items, and I got into a bidding war with a friend of mine who was constantly trying to up one-up me on the item goal. And he was buying some fairly expensive stuff because he had a job and he could do it. I had to survive on what money projects gave me because I didn't have a job. And I, I think I only went to the temp job once. So I was buying a lot of items, and I can see here I had a video game collection, a shoe collection, a porcelain doll collection, and a clothes collection, and I think I must have had three other things on top of that, you know, all typical girly girly things, like I'd just been to a, you know, a clothing, a clothing shopping spree in London or something, but I was buying them all at the cheapest level. Everything I can see in this picture was on the cheapest level I could get, because A, that was all I could afford, and B, I was more interested in the short-term happiness because I was trying to level up all the projects. But I just found it weird that I had all these things like, you know, I started off with video games as a geek, but then started getting into shoes, porcelain dolls, you know, clothes, and all these other girly-girly things like jewellery and stuff. And then finding the dreamy man, dreamy man called Glenn, and not having a job, <laughs> which is kind of odd, and just doing all these weird projects like, uh, you know, amateur theatre and, you know, starting a guild online. I think I started my own, like, World of Warcraft guild, effectively. I just say, I love this game. It is such a blast, and I feel I haven't even done it enough justice in my top 100, but I suppose it's because you play it with the wrong people that can fall a little bit flat, and 4 and 5 can take a bit long, but, yeah, you get the right people in the right mood. This is such a good game. Perfect even for having a drink with as well. Uh, what have we got now? Uh, Quadropolis. Yeah, Quadropolis. I don't need to say too much. I've done a review on this already, I believe. And yeah, it's a nice streamlined city building game. Build a city, use architects around this construction site in the middle of the table, which dictate which tiles you can take. You have to be careful because the tiles are getting taken by other players and your architects are quite restrictive. So you've got to be certain you don't paint yourself in a corner. On top of that, you've got six different things that you can collect in your city and they all score in different ways. And what did I do here? It looks like I I focused on civic buildings first, so I got those out of the way. And I had a massive network of harbours. I got the maximum points for harbours, a couple of uh, factories, and one city block. Mainly because I needed some uh, extra meeples fast. Yeah, one slight tower block. Because I was needing a lot of meeples. I mean, I was pretty much taking all the harbours that gave victory points or gave meeples and having to find other ways of getting meeples because of all the civic buildings. So, yeah, my board is literally a speck of blue. And even though I had minus four points from, you know, additional energy that I couldn't use, still won this one fairly comfortably. But it was just, uh, you know, I, I like getting this one out every now and again. It's a shame that most people don't want to play the expert mode on it. The expert mode on it is really good. But to be fair, classic is still good fun. Ah, here was a highlight. Yes, the gallerist. Friend of mine has been asking me to bring this to the Monday Club for ages. I was only too happy to get the gallerist off the uh, library shelf, bring it out, it was nicely packed, and teach her the game. Unfortunately, I was only able to teach it as a two-player game, but to be honest, that was kind of a benefit. 
Because one, we just meant we could have a good you know game as friends, and it meant that the game was actually pretty quick for what it was. You know, I taught the game you know pretty well because I know the rules fairly well anyway. But I mean, I'll give it credit. I think this is the rulebook that Paul Grogan had a, a working on, to my knowledge. But this rulebook is fantastic. I mean, for a heavy game, this is one of the best rulebooks written out there. There is step-by-step -step logical procedures. There is setup diagrams. There is pictorial examples for everything that happens in the game. And it is written in such a way that if you teach the game in the order the rulebook sets it out in, you cannot go wrong. Because you'll be thinking, well, maybe I should teach that first. Or should I teach that first? No, no. Teach it in the order the book tells you and you cannot go wrong it is that well written but a gallerist yeah i i think i've done a have i done a review in it i'm not sure but i've certainly spoken about it in time you know like my top 10 long games it's in there you can get more information there but yeah love it such a good looking game vital de Surda's best game just uh, it's streamlined even though it's a heavy game you can have turns out of sequence so the downtime is kept down there's different, you know, not tons of paths to victory, but you have got the reputation tiles that give you end game scoring bonuses. But oh, it just feels good. You know, you're discovering artists and you're pumping up their fame. You can role play it a bit. But whenever you take tiles or discover artists, you get all these little bonuses. And I love games that do that, where even if you don't think it was an optimal move, you still get a little bonus. And it just feels good to get a bonus for something. Not to be like, oh, you did the wrong move and, and smack you in the face. Yeah, come on, it's, you know, let us feel good about what we're doing. So, yeah, the gallery is, this photo looks nice, actually. Yeah, I love this game. I was so glad to teach it. She liked it. I think her boyfriend doesn't like it that much, which, fair enough, you know, different strokes for different folks. But certainly, uh, I want to get this back to the table again, actually. It's, it was, it's a really good game, the gallerist. What's next? Ah, here's a new one I can talk about, actually, and give first impressions. Uh, Broom Service. This one, I think, won the Kennerspiel the Yaris uh, last year, or was it the year before? It might have been the year before. And this one is a pretty simple game from Alea where you are controlling witch, uh, I suppose you're witches or wizards anyway, and you're trying to make potions and put them in various towers across the map. You're trying to deliver them. You're essentially a, a potion delivery service. And with this, you're moving across different types of terrain, but it's a role selection game. In order to move across the map and, you know, get rid of cloud, thunder clouds and deliver the actual potions and make potions, you have a selection of, I think, uh, one, two, three, four, five, is that ten? Yeah, ten roll cards, each of which does a different thing, although there are some that are kind of subsets of another grouping, if that sense, you know, like three of them produce potions, two of them do movement, etc., and you select, I believe, four of these every round for seven rounds, so it's a fixed limit game. And you do a role selection with your friends where you call out a card and it has two actions on it, a brave and a cowardly action. You can choose to do the cowardly action, which is a lesser form of the action on the card, but you will always get to do it. Or you can opt to do the brave action. The risk you take with doing a brave action though is that if someone after you in turn sequence also has that card they can play it your action is nullified and they do the brave action so you've got to be careful you've got to get in everyone's head thinking would they have picked that card you that which allows you to move across to mountains are they going to move to mountains probably not so i think i'm safe but then you get the times where it's like we're all quite short on potions. I don't think I want to make brave green potions here because I think you're going to nick it. So you, you get into that tense decision-making of, you know, oh, do I, don't I? You take a risk and then someone plays the card after you and you just want to punch them in the face because you just like, they've ruined your play. And it, it, it can get frustrating. 
This is not one for sore losers. This is not one who don't like to be slightly screwed over in games because it's almost half a take that game just in the way that, uh, you know, you can have a game plan and it can just be ruined by either bad decision making with the cards you picked or not grasping what your opponents are going to do or just sheer bad luck. It happens. But with a random event that happens every round, simple rules, you know, nice uh, sort of hand-drawn artwork. In fact, is this is this Vincent Dutrait's artwork? It kind of looks like his stuff. If not, it's very similar. It's, yeah, it's very colorful, very simple, and it's a light game. But it's a tense, frustrating one, and I quite like this. You know, if I can find a copy of this, I might get this for the collection. But don't play this with angry players. Like, really, do not play this with angry players. Thankfully, I was probably the angriest out of the three players that we had, and I'm pretty docile. So I was actually quite, you know, it was quite a, a solemn game, but there were certainly times where it's like, I'm going to play this, and it's like, oh, no, I happen to be the brave, and I'm going to kill you! <laughs> There's a lot of that, and you know, credit to this game. Broom service... Definitely one that you should give a try if you haven't already. Alright, here we got another new one. In fact, how many games we've got left? We have got three. Three more games to talk about and then we can wrap up this podcast. So, this one is a new one. The next one will be one that I've already played and the other one will be a new one. So, this is Role Player. Role Player is kind of like a meteor version of Sagrada. Sagrada basically is building stained glass windows and you do it with dice. You roll the dice and uh, you draft them from a pool and depending on your board you can place them in certain areas and you're trying to fill up the spaces in certain patterns. It's a neat little game, I like it. It's not the best thing on sliced bread but you know, I certainly quite like it. This one I wanted to try though because the theme spoke to me more. This whole building a D&D character. And I've done RPGs in the past. This is very familiar to me. So the idea of generating the stats for your character just sounded quite fun. I'd been wanting to play this for so long. This was on my must playlist for so long. And finally, Darius uh, and I managed to, um, you know, Darius Truman, I think. Truman? I can't pronounce his surname. I'm so sorry. But, yeah, the guy who runs Oncon. And he was a volunteer at Handycon as well, so he did a good job. But yeah, so he finally got to taught me, ta t teach me this game. God, it's late at night, and you know you you play it much like Sagrada. You have a pool of dice; they get rolled, but then you pick one, and depending which one you pick determines your initiative for buying cards out of a market. You want the dice to be high or low value depending on what stats you need to have for your particular character because you pick one ahead of time. You have a backstory, which basically is just try and get coloured dice on various spots. Apart from that, it's basically just role playing. And uh, you have an alignment, which again is just effectively shifting a cube on there with certain actions to try and get more points by being closer to your actual main alignment. But when you've done the dice mechanics and the shifting around in that, and there's quite a lot of that, just like in Sagrada, you also buy cards from a market, which feels very sort of Thunderstone Thunderstone-esque like. And these cards can give you skills, they can give you traits, they can give you armor and weapons, and they all do different abilities or get you points. And this costs money, you're trying to earn gold as well. And I found it just a really entertaining dice game. You know, I, I prefer this to Sagrada. I think Sagrada's good, I think this one is better. And some of that is because I can ham up the theme and roleplay it a bit because I've done RPGs and D&D &D in the past. So we were making fun of what type of characters we made. In fact, what did I have? I had a patrician halfling cleric who was a scoundrel for alignment. Kind of a weird mix, but... What was I? I was envious, uh, compassionate, which is kind of weird for a, uh, a scoundrel with an, a slightly evil alignment, cunning and weak. 
Yes, I deliberately made my strength like, you know, I, I negated the two points for getting strength at a certain level because I was a halfling, strength's not my strong suit, and deliberately took a card that gave me two points for having a, a strength lower than eight. So it was, you know, it balanced itself out. But I like the fact that I was a weak halfling cleric, you know. Anybody who's played D&D &D a million times will get these tropes. They will have fun with this game. In fact, I had so much fun with this game that I bought it a week later along with the Minions expansion. So I now have it in my collection and I hope to give the expansion a try because it all sounds like it basically just adds more of the good stuff. So why can't I? I can't complain with that one. So role player, good hit. If you like Sagrada, I recommend you give this one a try. Maybe you prefer the simplicity of Sagrada. I can understand that, so that's up to you. But maybe you're not interested in the theme. Again, I can understand that. If you're not a fan of Sagrada, I don't think this one's going to win you over per se. You know, I think you kind of need to at least like the other one. But yeah, give it a try if you're interested in uh, dice placement, dice manipulation, and just the funky theme of building a roleplay character. It even gives you score sheets that you can write your character on and use it in an actual game. I think they'd be a bit overpowered if you tried that, though. All right, and then after that, Keyflower. Yep, Keyflower, you know, um, I like this game. It's lowish in my top 100, you know, over time. It's a dry Euro bidding game with one of the worst rulebooks written in history. In fact, all the key games have got very badly written rulebooks. It's just a thing. But this is one of the games with bidding that I actually quite like, even with the maximum six players, subject to downtime. It's just a very entertaining game that gives me multiple paths to victories, you know, unexpected surprises and some tactical decisions. I really like it. This time though, we got to try it with the Farmer's Expansion. I hadn't tried that yet. I've only tried it with merchants, even though I own all the expansions. I've just never got my copy to the table. And most of the time, somebody only has merchants. This one, my friend has been wanting to try out Farmers for ages, and it's like, yes, we get to play Farmers, I want to play Farmers. I was just in time after finishing Roleplayer to jump in on this six player. And I gotta say... The Farmers is a big improvement. You get to get sheep and pigs and cows and put them on fields. There's a weird funky rule for how they're adjacent to each other and that, but it gives you more stuff to put on your little village to make it more vibrant, colourful and just more meaningful. But on top of the animals, you can get wheat, which improves your you know upgrade action. And it just opens up some extra paths to victory. I mean, you don't have to touch animals at all. You could ignore them entirely and just go for what you normally did in the base game. And for the most part, I did. I mainly just collected a ton of resources and gold and used them to get victory points. But I did at the end collect a few pigs. But some of my friends were literally loading up on as many sheep and cows as they possibly could. So there was a lot of good stuff to be had. And I really like how the starting tiles, sorry, yeah, the start player tiles, the ones that tell you what order you pick the boats in, I like how the expansion replaces those with ones that give you resources depending on which one you pick. That just makes them so much more interesting than just simply do you want to go second or third. Now you actually might want to go second mainly because it gives you resources as well as choosing the boat second. So there's a nice little mix in there. So this was a good improvement. A little bit fiddly to learn for your first time, but once you get used to how the fields and that work and how the point scoring works, Farmers is a solid expansion and I would rather use this than Merchants to be perfectly honest. Alright, finally, before we wrap this up, because it is getting late for me, we'll just quickly talk about Space Base, I think it's called. Um, this is kind of a um, a clone of Matikoro in a sense, except you're doing it with spaceships on a, on a board which you roll two dice, you see which ones you trigger, your opponents will get bonuses based on what they have. It's essentially Mighty Koro in space. And I have to admit, I don't like Mighty Koro. I think it's a pretty sort of, I mean, it's stupidly luck-based, and I know a lot of these are luck-based anyway, but that one just seemed pretty boring. There were cards that were way more overpowered than others, and the expansions made the game longer. 
The game was already too long. You know, Machigoro just was a bit of a mess. This one is a, an improvement. I'm not going to say it's fantastic, because you do have that problem of you will have turns where you just get nothing or get very little. And it can outstay its welcome when you have got, you know, a contingent of, you know, five players playing or four players playing. I feel this is better with two and three for speed. But then that changes the dynamic of the game, because you might be building up loads of cool cards with abilities that you can roll. But that's not great in a five or six, in a four or five player game. But if you've only got two or three of you, suddenly that's pretty good. So what you might do in a five or six player game is deliberately try and get loads of bonuses on the red side, which is, you know, when you replace a ship, it goes upside down and becomes something that triggers on an opponent's turn. So there was a lot of cool stuff you could uh, do with this one, and it's very colourful. This is one of the this is one of the most colourful games at the convention, and one of the most colourful games I've ever seen. I mean, the artwork is just bright and vibrant and in your face, which is, you know, pretty good. It fits the theme, and I like it. I wish you didn't have, like, cubes on tracks to track things like your income and that, but hey, it's a euro, what do you expect? There's a lot of different ships, there's lots of different abilities, you could create some cool combos. I thought this was pretty good, actually. I, I would play it again, I want to try it some more. I feel that it's a bit long with four or five players, but it certainly changes the dynamic into a game where it's like, if you know what you're doing, you can do this pretty quick, and you are involved because you're interested in what the opponents will roll. But yeah, I think it was pretty sweet. It was a good way to end the convention, and it was literally at the last minute of the convention ending that we finished this game. And that wraps it up for another podcast. Just to suffice to say, in summary, HandyCon 4 was a great success. Loved it. Well done, Paul. You've done a great job. You're doing better every year. And I can't wait to go to HandyCon 5 in January. I will be there. In fact, I will be there a day earlier because I will be attending on Thursday evening as well as the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So I hope to game with some of you then and play lots more great titles. So it's great to have a convention that works well and gets a lot of people there within, the, you know, an hour and a quarter driving time. You get to meet a few people from the uh, sort of Facebook and Twitter gang there and lots of people from the groups. Generally, it's a solid place to go. And if you haven't tried it, I recommend you do. So that's it for this podcast. I'm going to go to bed because it's quite late and it's the middle of the week. And after watching Ant-Man and the Wasp tonight, I'm certainly quite tired. In fact, one little note on that, go see Ant-Man and the Wasp if you haven't already. It's a fantastic film. So that's it from me. I'll see you on the next Broken Meeple podcast. And remember, as always, it's only a game. Take care and thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy life to listen to this podcast presentation. If you like what you hear, then please check out my other material on my various other platforms. Firstly, the blog, brokenmeeple.blogspot.co.uk, where you can find all my written reviews and links to my other material. You can find me on my Facebook page. You can also find me on Twitter, at The Broken Meeple, where you can ask me questions, get in touch, and just generally have a good conversation. You can also check out my YouTube channel where I'm posting anything from a review to a top 10 list to board game app playthroughs and hopefully much more in the future. And speaking of the future, if you want to support the Broken Meeple, then please subscribe to the Patreon campaign where you can assist in helping me keep this blog up and running and try out new ideas in the future. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast and I hope you enjoy listening to my other material. For now, take care and enjoy playing games. For me and everyone else on the Dice Tower Network, have fun gaming. Remember folks, Dice Tower Network cares.